It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. Uh, welcome to Caracon Carney doing this one from home. Caracon Carney sponsored by Siren Records in McHenry, where I was just this past weekend. I was looking through all the new stuff they got in. Uh, new Cinderella re-release. Someone's going to buy that. Also, uh, The Fall, and <laughs> a, a live uh, set from The Fall. I love The Fall. Siren Records in McHenry. I was there for an in-store with Broken Robots. Robots. Love that place. Go check them out if you're anywhere near the North. God, that's the far north suburbs, right? Right. Yeah. Over by Volo and uh, Ingleside, all those areas. Uh, Seven Records in McHenry. Here we go. I'm James Van Ossel. Welcome to Hot Girl Summer, which is exemplified by my guest tonight. Uh, you know, live music is back. We're excited about it, but it's not as exciting for the photographers who are shooting the shows. Photographers have been wrestling with the issue of rights and ownership for years. And these are issues that were made way more complicated by the Internet. Do photographers have the rights to the pictures they shoot at concerts? Who holds the rights? How's this whole thing going to shake out? Attorney Ilya Zlatkin of Zlatkin Wong and returning guest slash peerless photographer Bobby Telemeiner here tonight. So, guys, devil's advocate. You find anyone in any industry, they'll tell you how they're getting screwed by their business. Explain what's happening here. Ilya, you want to take the lead? Well, actually, I'd love to hear uh, your day-to-day experiences, especially in the post-Lala, so the the four day-to-day experiences. Um, And, you know, from there, just kind of put on a a hat of a music fan and and somebody that consumes images on the the internet, and then happy to pepper in with... with, um, I got some of this stuff already lined up, um, some pre-interview stuff here, James and Ilya. I guess I could start with... um, I was aware of only one release for Lollapalooza, and that was for the band Journey, and it's here in front of me. And this is a common uh, photographer consent form, by the way. So is this a really argumentative issue? Over the extent of the time that these rights grabs have become more prevalent, if this was back 15 years ago, I would say there's some shock, shocking things to this. But as of now, it's so dead. It, this is so common that I guess it's just you technically sign your life away. To some extent. Well, let, let's take one step back then, because for someone who is listening or watching, this may seem kind of vague and, and hard to pin down. At issue is when you shoot a show, you have to sign like, like you're talking about with Journey. You have to sign a, a rights waiver, basically, right? Basically, saying, correct. It's usually you're represented by an outlet, so it's a one-time use only, depending on the publication you plan on putting the photos in, and that's it. It's a it's a good faith agreement that you're not going to do it for self-promotion without notifying the said artist that you're doing that. Although and it's been my history that, boy, this is a slippery slope, but there's a lot of people I know that don't follow that. We can go on. A, I can bring up specific bands in particular that I've noticed. And I'm just as guilty, to be honest. It just depends. So you can't use but, it for self-promotion. So you're there shooting a show, let's, using the journey example, which means you can shoot this fantastic picture of Neil Schoen like a, a crowning achievement of your photography career. If you can't put it on your website or social media, you to can draw attention. You have to ask for permission to do that after the fact. And what are the chances of that happening? I would say you're going to get a no. I could be wrong. I've never attempted. Now, that's it, a good question. Now, Ilya, you're a lawyer. It, it, can, can promoters, can bands get away with that? 
It seems it seems crazy to me. At its most basic, right? Whatever you agree to in writing uh, is going to be enforceable. So if you're talking about bands that actually have releases on paper and a photographer wants to be in the space and they're not going to be able to access the space without signing a piece of paper, whatever that piece of paper says is going to be enforceable. Now, in terms of a photographer having access to the space without needing to have uh, signed that piece of paper, the photographer owns what, what they create and legally speaking, they can use it as they wish. So it's an interesting situation and pardon the expression, but it, it seems almost like they have photographers by the balls. They, you have to sign this. Yeah. That, that's the, the grounds for entry. You got to sign it to be able to take your pictures. Correct. You know, there's, there's no negotiation there. Is there, I mean, it's, well, you, you this is, that's an excellent. That's an excellent question, and I would have to defer this to Paul Natkin because he was the one who was teaching me back in the day as far as what he would do with your typical rights grab, and he would go. He would find it infuriating, as if you know Paul, as far as <laughs> signing this for something that he would look at the list. Here's three different things that are four different agreements that Journey wishes, and probably number three he would say is he can't do it. He would exit out and submit it back, and he would want an answer. And usually it would be like an awkward situation because who's he submitting it to? Probably the promoter. Right. Now, there's, what, what's the promoter going to do with that? The promoter can't give an answer to that. And what's that going to do as far as the delay? I mean, usually you can't get this done in advance. This is usually when you get these, you have a day's notice to sign it and send it back or submit it day of the shoot or the, or the show. So for a manager to come back and agree to, to not agreeing to number three and letting Paul proceed or letting me proceed – is probably 90% ain't going to happen, you mm -hmm. know, but that's what Paul would do. He would X off certain things on here that he felt were like egregious and then proceed. But yes, you are technically signing your life away to some extent, depending on, I have it a really egregious right scrap, which I can get to worse than journey. However, it is a one-time use only good faith, but it brings up a multitude of questions diving into the deep end of the pool, in my opinion. So they want, they want you to submit the 30 photos for said use for the editorial purposes. That never happens at a show like Journey or any band that you're shooting three songs. You're probably looking at with digital. Well, let's look at me if I had the chance to shoot. I didn't do this, by the way. I, I didn't choose Journey. I just wanted to, write, to have this as far as the record for our talk. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be 30, 30, or 45 photos. No. I want the best possible shots of Neil, like you just mentioned, or Narada, who's a friend of mine, the drummer now for Journey. Um, so it's probably in the neighborhood for three songs, 376 to 400 photos total. Sure. What about, now out of those, how many are decent that are not submitted for editorial use? I would say 100 minimum. And that's not part of this package. And you know, I, I, I want to stop there just to, for people who, again, who are watching and listening who don't know how this works. You said three songs, someone and we've talked about this before, Bobby, but someone might not realize that as a photographer at a rock show in the present day, especially you get the first three songs and then you're, you're shoot away. You, you don't get to Correct. shoot anything after that. You're escorted out or you're going to be good faith reviewing the show and your camera bag will be under the seat. Now, as a, an artist, as a photographer, you want to get deeper into the show. I mean, you're already getting hobbled by not getting the best part. So when the band Correct. really, finds their groove, they're sweaty, the, the, the power of rock compels the them. The mistakes that just, 
what makes a show a show. You don't, you don't have access to that. So you're already scaled back by having access to the first three songs only. And then, like you said, maybe that's 400 photos of which 100 are unusable. Correct. Yes. Which means technically do the math. Uh, 26 date tour. First three songs, no flash. Probably five, five, five photographers minimum per show. Everyone getting the same shot, depending. Right. They that, that's it, too. Yeah, how do you, how, that's it, too. How do you differentiate yourself if everyone's getting the same shot because they have the same truncated access to the performance? I guess you have to defer back to Paul Nacken and his wisdom in this in regards to you, you anticipate. You do it long enough, you know what's going to be a decent shot and unique shot. You don't have to have 36 photos that are solid. If you get two or three out of the show that are solid, you're going to be more than satisfied for use. You know. But again, in that three, it depends on, the, like here, a band like Rush. Now they they didn't. <laughs> we're, we're talking eleven minute songs, so now they limit that. It's like the first ten minutes of the show. And Tool's the same way, by the way. Like, uh, like first three songs or ten minutes, whichever comes first. That kind of whichever, thing. If, if it's a prog band, expect not the three songs because you're there for now. You're now now the time in the pit is probably a half an hour to forty minutes compared to like uh, the Minutemen. Exactly. <laughs> you know where it's a minute per song or whatever. But yes. So I would defer this to Paul Nacken and again, regards to uh, your, your, if you're a seasoned photographer, you don't need to do that. You need, you're just anticipating and you're not getting overwhelmed with the fact that there's a 20 day tour and 65 photographers throughout the country doing the same thing you are. You're going to find something unique. You're going to have your own stamp on it. You have to, you have to live with what you get, you know, you have to. So, so, so you guys, you guys that. are here tonight. You, you, you came on together to talk about what's going on. What in doing this interview and talking to me, to me tonight and, and sharing your story, what do you want people to take away from this? That it's frustrating. It's demeaning. Some of these rights grabs are so horrible when you're walking away and your creative output now is kind of technically destroyed because of the fact that they want to own all the images to perpet. You said the word at the beginning, perpetuity forever. Define that for me, please, because there's one rights grab here that's appalling. Uh, and actually, I didn't even really know this artist until I got the invite from the publicist. And uh, I guess, you know, Bobby, this is an up and coming industrial artist, industrial dream pop, whatever. And she's really cool. We'd love to have you at this show at the Vic to shoot her. Her name is Poppy, P-O-P-P-Y. I didn't even know of her until I got the invite. I didn't even know that she was playing at the Vic uh, before I got the invite. But this line. Can I read this to you? <laughs> I, I hope you, I hope you will. I sh- this is line number two. I shall provide you with copies of the photos, and I hereby grant you the right to exploit the photos for promotional purposes via Poppy's social networking sites, parentheses, including without limitation, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and MySpace, and official websites throughout the world in perpetuity. So basically, like promo, Im- you're shooting her promo images. And you're not getting the credit for it. I found that out when I called the publicist that it's just Poppy's usage and she'll do what she wants with them. And no, we're not going to have Bobby Talman on the photo. Lord, no. Right no. So I had to tell the guy, uh, I'm walking away from this. I'm not even going to sign this. No, I'm not photographing your artist, Poppy. And he goes, why? He goes, because again, I don't want to give all my f- photography to a girl I don't even know. Hope and pray she becomes popular. And even if she was to become popular, who's to say that I took the photo or didn't take the photo? You could put anything on that. So, no, I'm not. She goes, well, everyone else is doing this. I go, well, I'm one of the ones, I guess, that's not doing it. See, that's the tricky thing. They, they have the photographers, again, by the balls. Like, if you push back, you don't work and you don't get 
the access and for, for and an, up and, an up and coming artist that no one knows about. Yeah. If it's, if it's happening at that level, then, you know, look at a band just because we're rolling out of Lollapalooza, look at a band like say a Foo Fighters or a journey or God help us a limp biscuit. I mean, I can't imagine how much worse it gets as the, the relative importance or appeal of the band increases. That's again, an excellent point. It's an excellent point, you know, because I, now I defer back to how it's now demeaning because the best, my opinion, the best live rock and roll photographer or photograph ever taken was Penny Smith in the UK. I think she was in following the band clash and this, the actual, it's the London calling album cover of Paul Simonon on the verge of destroying his base because it was out of tune. Yeah. It's a renegade shot, but that wasn't taken in the first three songs. And she was the tour <laughs> photographer for the clash. Yeah. This was when she was attempting to walk out of the venue and she just noticed him getting all ape shit mad on stage and whoa, let's just bring the camera out and get this. So that's why it's kind of fuzzy. It's because it's just so matter of fact, last second yet. Can that kind of shot be done today? Probably, but you're really under the radar as far as making sure you're not going to get caught with uh, said, wow. you know, let's say there's a promoter in that section and noticing you do that. What kind of trouble are you in today compared to when Penny took the shot? Right. And and as the promoters get more giant and their reach ex- extends all over the place, you get in bad graces with one of them and you're blacklisted. Correct. And I don't mean to take up the time, but Ilya, this is where you could probably come in because there are two major incidences where things are really now the control has gotten way out of whack. And one of them is Taylor Swift. It was the 1989 tour. And it was unflattering some of the images that were being put online and she got offensive by it. She got offended by that. BuzzFeed picked up on it. BuzzFeed happens to love doing this, tweaking said artist because they're infuriating the photographer or whatever. And there was a line that it it got so ugly with the back and forth between uh, Jason, the photographer, I forget his last name, and Taylor Swift's people that he actually photocopied that rights grab and put it up. And it was line number five where it was, I don't have it in front of me, but I I looked at line number five and I was shocked at this, that if, if those images appear anywhere, as far as unflattering photos that we can confiscate your memory card, your camera, (laughs) the scare in line five was like, they could come after what, what do you, it was vague as far as the actual threat and warning. However, it, it didn't say it was, if it was actually, if you're caught performing or maybe the day after now they're going to find your address and come to your door and knock on the door and uh, they have a, a official uh, motion here what do you what do you call it when you enter breaking and entering or, yeah. or you're a police you have a and we want that memory card from your nikon uh, right now as far as you know it doesn't say that but it had that terminology in there as far as the vagueness of the threat <laughs> that's what Jason sure. said was so hypocritical because when he responded back to Taylor in this nine person back and forth, the last thing he said was, look, what are you doing to stop the iPhone photography that's going on in the venue? Let's look at right. the average uh, United center. What's the capacity? 17,000. Let's say half those girls have their iPhones up and they're posting it online. And you're telling me I can't shoot song eight. <laughs> right. Right. Ellie, what's flattering about a, about, about a grainy, picture taken by a, a phone's camera with someone's head in front of you. And like, of course it, it's bananas. All right. Sorry, Ilya, go ahead. Well, no worries. Uh, the, the, the questions that you're bringing up, uh, bring up uh, legal versus practical, right? We can talk about, well, this is what the bounds of law are. And you uh, then talk about your experience in 
negotiating with these parties, right? You're not necessarily negotiating with the artists. You're probably negotiating with their management, with their, Correct. Uh, with their, you mentioned pr- promoters, um, maybe venues to some extent, but probably the promoters and, and management. Uh, and then uh, there's a question of just pure bargaining power. You, Bobby, mentioned you said no, right? Other people, they'll, they'll say yes. And uh, my goal is that everybody at a minimum makes informed decisions, right? That if, if uh, you realize you know the extent of these rights grabs and uh, that what it is that, that as, a, as a photographer you're giving away, you can decide, okay, this is worth it to me. Or probably if you're, tru- if you're truly aware, if you can't uh, get credit, and at, at a minimum, right? Uh, and you, all you're doing is just building up uh, somebody else's portfolio because you don't actually have any avenue towards displaying your work publicly uh, after the fact, then, uh, well, who is it worth it? I mean, forget the fact that it doesn't put, put food on the table. It, at a minimum, just do- doesn't get, provide any value other than just to say you did it, I suppose. So uh, for, for people that are aware of those dynamics, they can walk away and, and they at a minimum need to know that that is their, if they actually have a piece of paper that is put in front of them or we'll, we'll go with, you know, electronic signatures, then they are giving all of that away. The, the trickier situations are when it's all word of mouth oral agreements. Sure. Yes. Which brings and, up Paul Nacken again. Right. And uh, exactly. And so that's really where there's much more Avenue. Um, and then also I think there's, there's room for negotiation outside of a massive uh, commercialized setting like Lollapalooza, right? There are smaller shows, there are smaller bands. Uh, and those are probably the opportunities for, photographers to maybe get that more unique shot and then also to not be dealing within this massive machine where there is very little, if any, bargaining power. I, I want to interrupt real quick. Uh, the name Paul Natkins come up a couple of times for people who don't know a well-known Chicago based rock photographer is taking some truly iconic images through the years. And that's who uh, Bobby's been referring to often right. for people who don't know. And somebody who also is somewhat familiar with litigation Uh, Harpo Studios versus Paul Nacken and Steve Green. Correct. Those are the two photographers that worked for Harpo. That whole issue that came down, even though it's not rock and roll photography, it did set precedent as far as copyright and ownership. And Paul is very protective of his photos as well as he should be. God bless him. Mm -hmm. Same with Stephen Green. And Paul wouldn't even have known about the whole mishap with this if he didn't see that weight loss book from Oprah and look through the 11 photos that were f- provided to the book. And it said, courtesy of Harpo Studios, it didn't mention Paul Nacken or Stephen Green in the lower hand corner. And that's why Paul filed the lawsuit was because of that ownership of those photos. And Ilya brought up a good point. I don't know to this day, because I've not talked to Paul about this. This is a question for Paul. As far as what was the agreement with Harpo Studios when you originally got on board to photograph the still those in-studio productions? I'm assuming like any production, like Ellen DeGeneres, et cetera, et cetera. It's not five days a week. It's probably two to three, and you're doing two or three shows per day. So it adds up. I think Paul and Stephen were the 
principal photographers for Harpo, let's assume over 10 years. Do the math, man. Three shows a day with probably a couple weeks of vacation, maybe longer for Oprah, who knows. But let's say even 30 weeks of it. 30 times five shows a day. Then times 10. What mm-hmm. are we at? 6,000? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a wizard of math, but it's a lot. So the reason why Paul followed the lawsuit was because he thought he owned the rights to those images. And Harpo Studios and Oprah thought that they had the rights because their contracts, they were like, the, he, I think Oprah dug a grave by saying that they were full-time employees. And that's the reason. She was putting out stuff from her attorney that make it sound like the, the almighty powerful belonged to Harpo. Which, of course, Paul could, <laughs> again, is it a handshake agreement? I, I don't know if it's if they had a contractual thing, like a piece of paper that says that this is this is this. And, and again, it's probably better that Paul addresses this stuff. I feel yes, like. but I do know the history again, because here I bring this up because it sets precedent. It really does. Even though it's not concert photography, who owns the rights to this? Cook County courts are slow. They're like turtle space. I mean, it took three years to solve this problem. And of course, like any, I've had my own lawsuits that have taken forever to get through that, through, through the system similar to that, but not under copyright. Suffice it to say, judges change over that time period. Some get voted out, some get voted in. The last guy, McAllister, was the one who was infuriated. Both parties could not get together and said, I want this resolved. I want this resolved now. And lo and behold, three years into this thing, they settled within 90 minutes of Mr. McCallagher, the judge saying that, and both parties agreed they own ownership to the photos. The whole reason why Oprah's people were, were uh, on the fence was because the, of, they were afraid of the damages and there were none. Paul said he didn't want damages. He wants, he wants to own his photos. Yeah. But Harpo also went a step further saying they didn't want, un- here, this is, the, this is another key point to this conversation tonight. Harpo and Oprah do not want unflattering photos of her online. Like, so this is good faith, kind of, as far as the settlement, as far as what Paul or Stephen plan to do, as far as any future publishing and what they do, they have to get approval from Harpo. I don't know, but they're making it certain because, you know, Oprah had, I can't, I assume it's because of the, the, the weight gain stuff. Like, are we going to do a thinner Oprah as far as photos? Or are we going to show an early Oprah where she's 310 pounds? You know, again, I don't know. But that's what she's protective of is the quote-unquote unflattering photos. All those settled out of, out of court, these two parties. But well, he did get the rights to the photos. Just to kind of ground our understanding of rights, I, I want to throw it back to Ilya. You know, I know working in radio for a long time, Everything I created for the radio station when I worked for the radio station was the property of the radio station, be it you know, naming a, a concert event or a radio show or even the on-air breaks that I did and the interviews I did. I did those were all owned by whichever radio company I worked for. I, I, I guess it's like a work for hire agreement. I, I'm not even sure of the, the semantics. Is that different? Are things different in a situation like Bobby's describing where staff photographers are shooting for the company? And that as independent entities? Well, yes. Uh, And this employee versus independent contractor distinction is of the utmost importance when dealing with work for hire and uh, who at the very beginning is not only the owner, but also the author of a particular work. Um, And Bobby, in the the Natkin case, uh, that was a massive part of the discussion. It's neat to hear your anecdotal uh, stories about, you know, what, what Paul and, and Stephen were, were thinking behind the scenes. I, I just read the, the opinion that's from, you know, back in 2000 
Uh, so really at the dawn of the internet era as well. But I don't want to get off mm-hmm. uh, off topic here. The, the a, a big part of that discussion in the court opinion is, well, are Natkin and Green employees or are they contractors? And in the work for hire arena, that is really the, the very first question that's asked. So James mentioned the, you know, he worked for the company. You're probably a W-2 employee, right? Mm-hmm, right. And by default, by being uh, an employee in the legal sense, uh, not necessarily what you're referred to on a day-to-day, but in the legal sense, after analyzing a bunch of factors, not the least of which is, are you being paid as a W-2 or a 1099? Right. Uh, are you an employee? If you are, your employer owns everything as a work for hire. And that actually also makes them the author, which has some tangential, uh, makes a difference in some ways. Yes. Well, let's take one step back then. And again, this is really to help my understanding, but I think people listening and watching as well, take the employment out of the, out of the picture. If you create something, let's say it's a podcast, let's say it's an image, a video that you take, do you by default own that content? Even if you're taking a picture at, let's say the United Center, if you're taking a picture with your phone, you own that if you're there as a, an individual, as an individual. Yeah. Assuming you're not within the scope of your employment uh, for whoever your employer is at this concert, then yeah, by default, you're the creator, you're the initial owner. You're not going to be transferring any rights in it unless you're signing something. In, in writing, and uh, you're also the author. You own all these exclusive rights that are encapsulated through the word copyright. Uh, and that doesn't change until there's some sort of written agreement to the contrary. You can also provide an implied license to somebody, a, a license, right? Uh, by saying, here you go, go ahead and use it, but you can revoke it at your convenience if there's not something in writing to the contrary. So that's why as somebody that needs rights, you want to have an agreement in writing because that if you don't, then your best case scenario is somebody gives you a revocable license that they can just terminate at, at will. So Bobby, how do, how do we affect change here? We as I'm speaking French, I, I, how does change happen here with promoters, band managers? Is this, is this just, has the the proverbial cow left the barn? Are we are yes. photographers just screwed moving forward? And I think we are because otherwise, if they have all these photographers that are so talented, band together and then like strike against shooting a such artists or all artists that are popular that have photographic agreements, and I do not see that happening. The, it's just not worth the time and energy. Let alone. You're looking at the power of let's say let's use it as another example Beyonce because this is key again, to unflattering photos and what she's done to circle the wagons. And she devised up and created her own media uh, company uh, and promotion company called Parkway Entertainment, I believe. And yes, she only has one photographer now and she only will submit, like, let's say Beyonce comes to Soldier Field for two nights, 60,000 capacity. And it may be a 16-day tour for these mega football field shows. And one photographer shooting the event and probably 14 photos submitted to set outlets. You take a pick of whatever one per night. What changes in this? Probably nothing. 
But, you know, if you're the Boston Globe waiting for your photos from Chicago and they look the same, what do you do? Chicago Tribune and Greg Cott. This is another key point to this. Greg would Greg would walk away if he couldn't get art. And that was happening a lot. So Greg would write reviews and there'd be no art at all because or they wouldn't even review the said concert. This was towards the end of, uh, you know, when he went to do sound opinions. And you can I've heard I've had this conversation with Greg. They would just not even bother even with the popular artists. But here's the reason why Beyonce did this uh, to form her. And this is why Taylor Swift followed suit, by the way, was there was an unflattering photo from the, from the Super Bowl back. I think I can't remember when 2006. And it shows her like Tina Turner in physical grunting. <laughs> She's a physical performer, yeah. but the photographer that's posted the photo showed her just gritting her teeth, like in the middle of whatever song physical, you know, and uh, the interpretation of that was like the exact opposite of the performance. And it got out of hand as far as the internet and memes, like someone took a, some guy from Sweden took that grunting photo and put barbells underneath. Like she was lifting a hundred pounds of weights and Beyonce's people handled it the wrong way because it was Buzzfeed that went crazy nutty with the photos and the joke behind the whole thing. And they, they kept sending letters to Buzzfeed to cease and desist and all these threats and Buzzfeed would basically come back with the middle finger saying ain't, ain't happening. And it got worse. I mean, the wormhole of the confrontation, like if it was Beyonce's people, they should have just left it alone and they didn't. So now that's why she formed Parkway entertainment and good luck getting approved to shoot. We only have one photographer. And again, this, it gets even more infuriating guys because here we have before the pandemic, Nick cave playing at the Copernicus. Uh, that was, you know, after his son passed away, I think it was a talk along with a solo piano, no Warren Ellison band. It was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I know the promoter, uh, not just the promoter, but the publicist for, for Nick. And I made the inquiries and he says, you know, Bobby, you're welcome to review the show for your publication, but no, we're going to submit the six photos for you. So I went to, Six, only six. Boy, I told him, you know what? All the air with Nick Cave just left the room. You just yeah. sucked all the art in the out of for a 14 day tour, and you're only allowing six photos to pick and choose from all 16 dates. Oh man, that you want to talk about the definition of self defeating for an artist of his caliber, and you don't have the yeah. chance to produce something unique for that quality of an individual. Man, it was such a disappointment. Sure. And you're 50-50 with this. I, I do. I t- Back in the day, I used to not take the high ground. I would say, now there's a vendetta. I'm going in with my camera. One way or the other, we're going to get a good shot of this. But that always, that just <laughs> that's a lose-lose in right. my history. But that's what you think. Like, you are, you have just, you just screwed around with the wrong guy. You know that? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is your but, career. This is your livelihood. This is your art. Yes. And it's Nick Cave. Or upper, oh, my God. It might, I bow to this guy. And yet sure. six photos. And you're going to provide them after I write this review. Ah, I have no heart in writing a review now. You know, what? <laughs> you mentioned memes and we see them everywhere. People use them. I, I've always wondered how these are allowed to, are, are allowed to proliferate, knowing that it, it's someone else's copyrighted content that's going around. I mean, the, is someone, I'm going to throw it to you, Ilya, is someone who posts a meme, which is basically everyone who I'm associated with on social media, is someone committing a copyright violation? So, pardon the lawyerism, uh, <laughs> it depends, right? Uh, it, it'll depend from situation to situation. Um, and there's also a bit of a pendulum. So 
when memes initially started to get going, you had uh, kind of this thing of what are you possibly going to do to co combat this? Um, it goes back to the question of fair use, right? Uh, often heard about uh, frequently uh, misconstrued and misunderstood. Uh, the there's a it, it's a balancing of public benefit versus private incentives, right? If the goal of the U.S. Copyright Act and, and the U.S. Constitution is to uh, to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. On the one hand, you have, okay, well, you need to incentivize each individual to create useful stuff. Uh, and in order to do that, we're going to give them these exclusive rights that they're going to uh, benefit from and can exploit as a monopoly for a certain amount of time before it goes into the public domain. And then on the other side of things, there's a question of, okay, well, if the, the public benefit, can we, can we incorporate uh, something that exists already? If we do that without asking for permission and without compensating somebody, is the public going to benefit uh, to an, such an extent from, from that kind of use that the fact that we're screwing over this one private individual by not giving him compensation in this instance that that's trumped, right? So uh, it, it is an analysis every single time uh, if you if if something is fair use, because you'll hear that fair use is an exception to copyright protection. It's it's defense to copyright protection. Uh, it doesn't really matter which one of those it is. It, it's a question though that gets addressed if there's already a conflict, right? If somebody's saying that okay, we're uh, you're, you've infringed on my rights and then you're waiting for a judge to say, well, it is or it isn't fair use. Your question, though, about means relate to one of the, we'll say, favored purposes of fair use, which is criticism and, and, and also commentary. And so one of the, it, now it do, doesn't mean that if there's a little bit of text on an image, then all of a sudden it's criticism or commentary or if there's actual comments underneath the image that now it's uh, uh, now it's fair use. But it is one of those things that has this bit of a presumption that, okay, we really need to be thinking about fair use and is this fair use? Um, there's four factors that usually get looked at and please stop me if like, we're getting- oh, I'm fascinated because in talking to so many podcasters and, you know, running uh, digital for a couple of radio stations or the digital content for a couple of radio stations, I, I've always understood or my guiding philosophy was if you don't own it, don't use it, don't touch it, just err, err on the side of that. And I found that a lot of people will talk about fair use who don't actually know a whole lot about it. Fair use becomes this like default. Well, you know, fair use. What does that mean? I mean, the analysis gets screwed up all the time. Right. And then the problem is that, uh, you know, you go and talk to a lawyer and he gives you a defense and you're thinking, OK, well, how, how can I actually implement this? Um, and the, the truth is that you really have to conduct a case by case analysis. There is not going to be any absolutes, any existing rules that in a vacuum you can say, if X, then I can use this without permission or if Y, then no, I can't. I think, James, that it's an excellent rule of thumb to go by that if you don't own it, then 
don't use it, um, at least start there, right? Uh, and then if there's something where you just truly, truly, truly need to use it, then, you know, you, you make that case-by-case -case analysis. Hopefully it's not a, an everyday thing. Now you're talking about uh, media outlets mm -hmm. that use this all the time, right? Uh, and they default to it that this is fair use and you end up uh, a lot of the time they misuse fair use. Well, I see radio stations. I mean, specific to rock photography. I see, I see radio stations. I see media companies just grab whatever they can find off. The, Got to get the story up and they'll share stuff to social media. Like just common sense is just gone. If they find something, well, if I can find it on Google images, I can use it. Right. What a no. terrible, terrible thought process. And, <laughs> and that's a very important thing. You, you know, you mentioned James with, uh, you know, I found it somewhere on the internet. So it must be okay. It. It's there. Right. Yeah. Right. So on the whole, I mean, the, the, that's a systemic question, right? Uh, if your staffer who is in charge of scouring the internet and finding stuff that matters, if that's their mentality, then that is a company wide breakdown mm -hmm. of training, right? Because that, that cannot be what they default to. In yeah, thinking that it's out how there. do they yeah. stand out though? They're looking for that unique image that's different from another station similar in Cleveland that might be toasting the same thing times 56 other states. That's why sure. they do that. Well, it, sure. And it's, it's, it's a risk reward thing. Unique. It's a risk mm -hmm. reward thing uh, right. because, you know, if, if, if that's worth it, well, let's say to the company, then they're making their own informed decision, right? About the risk that they're willing to for take. Sure. Um, but, uh, it's, I think on a corporate level, it's a terrible policy, uh, especially with, uh, journalism based companies and other media companies, because they're sophisticated. They, they know intellectual property. And if they ever do get sued, if a judge decides that something is not fair use, then they have, I think that little bit of additional exposure by nature of being a sophisticated party that infringed on somebody's rights. Uh, and, that whole level of sophistication, even though legally speaking, it's it only relates to damages, not really so much to is there a violation in the mm -hmm. first place? Uh, a lot of these means they're not originating with massive corporate uh, entities, sure. right? I mean, that some guy sitting in, in his room, some kid um, at that point for anybody looking to enforce their rights, they really need to be thinking about whether it's good optics and whether it's truly worth it. I mean, really, I, I'm not a fan of memes, except for the Billy Corgan on a roller coaster. If we can make an, exem an exception for that, that that'd be great. If we just let leave that one alone, Billy Grumpy Billy Corgan, that'd be that'd be wonderful. So, I mean, Bobby, I, I guess the question is: Are there any wins to be had? I mean, it, this is your life and your livelihood. If you don't see this course writing itself, I, it's a rhetorical question. I feel guilty asking, but what do you do? Okay, well, this is that's an excellent question, and I got to defer back to Ilya when he said at the beginning, you start from the bottom up. You go, you go to build, build awesome venues like the Empty Bottle, where you get you you know when the band's loading in, then security is kind of loose, and you get to know who the producer is for the show and who's running the bar and da da da, da and you ask if it's if it's okay to shoot the shoot the band, you know, and then they give you they get sure. Are you kidding? They would probably love to have that kind of uh, promotion publicity, even not knowing who you are. But you know, you're getting, making the attempt. It's yes. like the rookie it's, card, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I here I, boy, 
this might be troublesome what I'm about to say, but it's a, let's go back to the band Tool. You know, Tool's last time in Chicago was October of 2019, I believe, with Killing Joke opening at the United Center. And it was a massive tour. And it was strict. I got the photo. It's similar to Journey telling you what you can use, what you can't use. In perpet- it doesn't use the word perpetuity, but they own the rights of the images that you're going to submit. And it's a one-time use kind of thing. And it's not for self-promotion. A year later, out of the six photographers, no, I think there was eight in the photo pit. Now, again, this is I, ethical. I try to abide by that, even though mm-hmm. my history has not been so good with that. But, you know, again, I'm no, I'm no saint with this. I'm not like Ron Galela, the paparazzi photographer from New York either, this being the other extreme. But having said that, I was shocked a year later how many people were using their own name of Maynard Keenan uh, saying this was a year ago because it comes up as a memory share on sure. Facebook. Sure. And they bring a little blurb to it, but they don't say that you, the outlet that the actual photograph originated from, it's going to have the name of the photographer underneath it. And that's, <laughs> here we go is now, again, I, I'm not tools management investigating every instance of their photos being used outside of the one use only thing. It's probably time consuming to have to do that. And is it worth their time and energy? Another question. And the third thing, investigating said photo and how many likes with said photographer. If it's 66 likes, is it even <laughs> is it worth the time of day if it's on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram to have that photo that came up as a memory share a year later? These are I mean, questions for Ilya. I mean, it's, it's scary. It's, 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 Here, I want to finish with this, James, real quick. Ilya brings up a good point as far as these outlets like the radio stations and the memes that you brought up with a team of lawyers on both sides. Individual photographers do not have that luxury. And the scare comes in. It's a big yeah. scare of the threat of if you were to be that popular and promote said photo, and if they come after you, how can you fight a team of 12 attorneys versus one guy who doesn't even know where to begin to look for an attorney right. well, and proceed <laughs> as far as copyright? That's the, that's the biggest question of all of this is the walking on eggshells and what you think you can get away with and hope and pray that you don't get caught. Sure. Hey, yeah, can I get sense. a little bit of clarification, Bobby? The, the walking on eggshells, hoping you don't get caught. Are we talking about the photographer using images that he took? But that yeah, just putting them up by- there. Well, and because it's a huge band, and not many people are actually, you know, they're abiding by the rules. But these said photographers aren't. You know, <laughs> they're technically breaking that agreement by putting the tool photos up. You think I've, about it. I've often wondered why more photographers don't sell prints because as I'm looking to put stuff on my walls, I'm like, oh, I'd love some cool like concert shots for my walls. This answers those questions, uh, that question very succinctly. They can't. They can't sell prints of their stuff. Also, it's about it's, the band having some part of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so on, on, yeah, so on the, on the legal side, uh, it, it seems I mentioned that everything is going to start with this written agreement, right? So yeah, let's just start with the basis that if you've signed something that says that in effect that whatever photos you've taken at a particular location on a particular date are work made for hire owned by whoever is giving you permission to be there and they don't have to give you any sort of credit. They don't have to give you compensation. They probably don't even feed you, right? So uh, all of that, start, start there that, yeah, if you sign something like that, that's going to be enforceable. You don't own anything. And 
uh, you can go talk to a lawyer. That's what they'll probably tell you. Okay. I can, then let's start to pair back from that, right? Not everything is so austere. If I, I can tell you a situation in which it's very hard for a lawyer to help you. And then we can talk a little bit about, well, here's what you can do on a, on the legal side to make it actually practical to enforce rights because uh, there is an, an avenue towards uh, getting something in a dispute and the lawyer is going to earn something and you're going to earn something. And so everyone's incentives are aligned. And so from there, you can actually do something about it. So the situation in which it's really impossible to help somebody other than this written agreement bit uh, where the photographer doesn't actually have any rights whatsoever uh, is the, the situation in which a photograph is used uh, more than three months after the photographer posted it online and the photographer did not register his copyrights with the U.S. Copyright Office before the beginning of that infringement. That has a couple of significant effects in that uh, if, if, if we're talking about potential litigation, right, and we have to talk about that because when, whenever you send a cease and desist letter to somebody, right, there, whether it's explicit or not explicit, there has to be an or else, right? The or else is or else we'll sue you and we're going to win, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's true and whether it's believable, whatever, right? Whether, but there has to be that or else. Without a timely copyright registration, it's very important to know that, right? We, we all hear that as soon as you create something, it's protected by copyright. That's exactly true. what I was going to ask about. That's Excellent question. Excellent question, yeah. That's true. And you can copyright something 10 years later. But the, uh, and by, by copyright something, I mean register the copyrights with the U.S. Copyright Office. But uh, if the infringement started before that, and more than three months after you published it, let's say whether it's on Instagram or wherever else, Flickr doesn't matter. Um, if if it's not a timely copyright registration, two things go away. One of those is statutory damages. I realize that's a you know legalism, and but what it practically means is the photographer doesn't necessarily have to prove the actual damages that they suffered as a result of this. They don't have to necessarily have sold prints previously uh, or uh, have licensed photographs previously to be able to say that this is how much money was literally taken out of my pocket uh, because I wasn't able to do this. Statutory damages, uh, they are quite a significant range. They're a range between $750 to $30,000 per work that's infringed. Um, now, obviously, everyone here is the higher figure, and, and they're, you know, it, 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 it's not, that doesn't mean the judges would award that. But the more egregious an infringement, the more on that range mm -hmm. uh, the judge would err. And then also, you've probably heard of up to $150,000 per work. Uh, that, that's the potential statutory damages. That's true for willful infringement. So if somebody was, really, really naughty in, in their use. And if somebody was sophisticated and really should have known better, 
there is this potential of additional significant statutory damages. Um, and, that, and so that's one important component of uh, what the timely copyright registration allows. The other is attorney's fees. Now, they're not always going to be uh, granted. It's in the discretion of the court. But um, if you don't register your copyrights in timely fashion, then that's going to be off the table and you can't claim attorney's fees. And so that makes it really impractical, right, for an attorney, uh, unless we're talking about a photograph that is just very obviously quantifiable in terms of how, how much money was made from the infringement. And what we're talking about applies the same really across whatever media somebody's creating in. Um, but uh, unless, unless there's that tr value that's easy to assign, unless you're the type of artist, photographer that's been able to license something for five figures, uh, you know, if, if that happens for a massive ad campaign or for whatever else, uh, statutory damages and attorney's fees are what make that actually something that an attorney can take on and work with somebody a lot of the time on a contingency basis. So, you know, you, you pay, you, you don't actually go out of pocket to pay the attorney and uh, you know, there might be some out, uh, out of pocket fees for initiating a case if that becomes necessary, but you're not actually paying an attorney's rate. And Ilya, Ilya, yeah. no one does that though. I mean, I know every photographer in the city of Chicago and they don't, to my knowledge, this topic has never come up as far as registering with the copyright office on said photos. I mean, that's, I, I can tell you that we work with people that do do that, uh, you know, in, in um, Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, but it absolutely, my goal in being here is to, to inform people that, that this is what they should be doing. And, and it's, Registering your copyrights, if somebody's ever done it, that's not a very expensive thing to do. It's, uh, it's not a very complicated thing to do. And in terms of protection, it's one of those things that is um, uh, the best bang for buck. Uh, you know, photographers can, on a single registration application, submit, I want to say, 750 photographs. And it's, what, the $65 fee? Um that, you know, if you're running, if you're serious about it, as that's my li livelihood, and I make a living through photography, well, you know, that's as legitimate a business expense as there's ever going to be. And that's what people say that. Should be doing. I'm um, sorry to interrupt. No, not, not at all. And, and so then the other thing that that photographers should be doing, again, assuming that they actually own the work, is uh, putting copyright management information into the, their work and that's um and the, metadata. the metadata is one thing uh certainly watermarks or copyright notices on the face of the photograph and then also uh something in proximity to the photograph right so if, if you post something on Flickr, it'll have right below it right you can d select what kind of rights reservation you have whether it's all rights reserved or whatever other licenses you want to grant, you can do copyright Bobby Tom. <laughs> Bobby, I mean, I'm so sorry. Um, 
uh, you know, 2021 un under the photograph, all of those, uh, all of that copyright management information is something that first and foremost should convey to whoever sees it. This is the, the, the person who owns it. If you like this photo and you want to license it, uh, this is who you should reach out to, right? That is the first uh, and primary point of that. Um, and everybody who, who's a professional photographer, that should be the goal, right? That, that my work is properly licensed and I can make a living off of that. Um, or my prints are bought and mm -hmm. I can make a living off of that. The secondary component of the copyright management information, however, is that removing it knowingly and also inserting false copyright management information is uh, a violation of the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And the DMCA for those types of violations also has statutory damages, which range from $2,500 to $25,000 per violation. Okay, so even if you assume that you're getting uh, an award on the absolute lower end of that spectrum of $2,500 per violation. If somebody sent that to a mailing list of, let's say even just 50 people, right? Each one of those is a violation right? because it creates a copy of the work. And so that's really what creates additional potential in enforcing rights. Again, and, you know, the, the goal is not to get somebody in a gotcha. The, the goal is to make a living and to actually be able to um, not say, not, not, just, not just say, hey, I own this, but to be able to enforce your rights if you want to. And if you do that, whoever it is that you're sending that cease and desist to, they will have to take you much more seriously than if you don't have that timely copyright registration sure. uh, because the risk that for them is that much, that much higher. So, so in conclusion, Bobby, where does this leave us as we, as we wrap things up? We're still in that area where we're going to proceed and uh, hope and pray. We, uh, the art of self-promotion without, rubbing ruffling feathers i suppose well I, I think i think you said it i mean it it really is about bringing things back to that grassroots level like fuck it the the, the big artists and promoters are going to do what they do that's that's out of reach and it's not worth the frustration the angst and the, the career killing but you know maybe if you go to lincoln hall or reggie's or wherever th those are i love that more than the larger shows to to be course, honest but, you know because you want to see a band develop if you totally dig the music you want to see them grow and you were there on the ground when they Absolutely. first started that's you know? why we all the do answer, this Absolutely. the answer is a perfect case in point with that with me you know back the first time i shot them was double door when they were doing a pre-show for cold waves i think the second or third cold waves and the band was just forming and look at them now they made everyone's top 10 list i think as far as an album from last year and they, we still have this good handshake agreement with alicia and uh, and the rest of the band who I adore, and they're at the up the battle. Oh, sure, Bobby, do what, dude. We love you. Do whatever you want. I, you know, again, that's the thing, man. That that is juice. There is my commission. Is that little lovely statement from Alicia? But that's you're right, coming full circle. And, and believe me, I get it. Like, bottom up. 
I, I don't have relationships with the Foo Fighters or Journey, but on the local level, yeah, they, those are my people. I want to support them, and I'll, I'll, you know, those relationships exist because you do this long enough. That's the most rewarding thing in the world is to see that that growth and be part of it. It's it's awesome. You're right, and you're going to have a much higher chance of retaining rights in, in your work. Correct. Right. right. Uh, one more thought. I I just got a. As we're talking about fair use and copyright, I'm going to get off photography for just a second. A guy on social media about two months ago sent me a link to his podcast. He's like, hey, you're a podcaster and broadcaster. Check out my podcast. And what he sent to me was essentially a radio show in a podcast. It was him front selling and back selling full length songs. I'm like, dude, take down your take down your RSS feed today. Like, you can't do that. He's like, well, fair use because I'm, I'm talking about it. I'm like, nope, that's. You, you can't oh. you, you can't put like the Rolling Stones in your podcast. I'm sorry. You can't you can't put Jumpin' Jack Flash. It's amazing how little information people are aware of or are willing to hear when it comes to this stuff. And even when they're when they're confronted with it, they, they right. say, no, they, they, I'm, I'm good. I mean, we've only touch the subject. I mean, this literally can go another hour. It was more fascinating. What the F's as far as our behavior. <laughs> I agree. And I just, I looked at the clock and realized we've been talking for an hour. I'm like, oh, I should probably take this for a landing at some point. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree. I, I think this topic is endlessly fascinating and it is completely topical and it completely touches all of our lives in and out of entertainment and the arts. It, it, it's, it's when consumers make contact with every day with social media. Fascinating stuff. All right. So I am going to take it in for a landing. Uh, Elias Latkin, thank you so much for the 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 learned voice of an attorney, entertainment law. This is stuff I I, I find it very interesting I, I because I'm in and around these worlds. I, I love hearing the, the cold facts of how this stuff should operate. Bobby, you know, I'm a fan of what you do. I'm a fan of yours. Uh, I think the situation as it currently exists sucks and yeah it probably will keep going in that direction for the bigger bands but i can't wait to see it those smaller shows heading into the fall right back at you <laughs> Ilya. you've been great too i gotta say very informative thank you so much guys uh, it's a pleasure